0: Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, We are on, uh, there are blue Bibles in front of you in the pews. We're on pages 222, 691, and 822 today. Um, And uh, I apologize if I'm sniffling and coughing and stuff up here. I'm just, I'm feeling a bit under the weather. I'm not sure why. Give me some grace, topic of our series here today. So Um, Here's where I want to start. Something that I think is fairly representative of American culture is how we celebrate the so-called self-made man. And I remember growing up in school and and we would talk about a variety of heroes. Anybody from Christopher Columbus to George Washington, Benjamin Benjamin Franklin to Thomas Edison, and then on to Henry Ford and you know, so on and so forth. And, and it was always a celebrated thing that people who work hard, sacrifice, and give life, everything it, that, that they have to a singular cause uh, would cause them then to ultimately be successful. And in contemporary culture, we do that same sort of thing. We celebrate the ingenuity of a, a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates The work ethic and passion of an Elon Musk or the drive and maybe ruthlessness to some degree of of a Jeff Bezos. Now I can't speak into the notion if any of these men are actually the self-made kind and honestly I would probably push back on that concept a little bit of the self-made man but whether or not it's true is not exactly the point. The point here is that these men are celebrities in their own right, and they are examples of the celeb- celebratory pomp and circumstance we place on people when they accomplish something society deems as significant. Now, if you've been paying attention, yes, you will know that the people that I just noticed have two qualities, and that's a topic for another day. But, but that's the way our culture celebrates things, right? So aside from those that I just mentioned you know we also live in this celebrity this celebrity culture we revere those who entertain us or lead us in some way shape or form whether it's a hollywood actor or an elected official there are people in our culture in whom the general public places their trust and who, upon whom we shower with accolades for certain talents that they may possess um all fine right no, no problem uh, with some of these things. That's, that's the society in which we live, right? Uh, however, what we have seen recently is a big shift towards accountability with our contemporary pop culture heroes and elected officials. And I happen to think that the Me Too movement is the biggest uh, component of that uh, and, and the most influential example of it. People have felt empowered to speak out about past indiscretions involving themselves, involving some really famous people, and those people are now suffering the consequences of their actions where previously maybe they were not. Uh, Add to that where there's been a sort of a revisionist history and changing sentiments about how we feel about some of our historical figures as well. And as the moral compass has started to point in another direction, and more people have a voice through social media, platforms, this, that, and the other, and not to mention fact that credence is being given to the victims of these crimes, we're really starting to change the way we view those who were previously vaunted as heroes through our grade school years. And we don't need to get into specific examples if you're living and paying attention to the media, you know what I'm talking about. This is a good thing in my mind, and I, and I want to say that out loud. This is a very good thing. Uh, and it's good that people care enough about the emotional well-being of their peers enough to stand up for what they think is right. And what we're seeing is the pendulum swinging in the other direction. And the future, I think, will look much different than it does uh, today. And, and, I, and I think it's bright because of these things. So, when we were planning this series, we got to talking about stories from the Old Testament that involved some sort of grace element. And we shared our thoughts on quite a few revered biblical characters, uh, which was really good for us to talk about. And when we talked about these things, one that came up was maybe, maybe, arguably, the most revered Old Testament character, and that is King David. Now, immediately... When I think of David, the phrase that immediately comes to my mind is a man after God's own heart. That's what we've heard about David. That's what's said in the Bible about him. And after that, I think about the David and Goliath story, which is a story that I think nearly everyone knows. And if you don't know the details of the story, you at least know that it's a story about an underdog who defeats the big giant, right? Sports fans love that kind of stuff. Um, However... After those two things, inevitably, I think of David and Bathsheba. And maybe some of you think of that story first, I don't know. And now the point I want to make, both about David and the people that I mentioned at the beginning of the message, is that, for the most part, they all have humble beginnings. Um, And the story of David is similar in that vein. He comes out of nowhere, seemingly, uh, to become the ruler of God's people, and and let's be honest, man, what you know about David? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift around a little bit today, so uh, because the truth is, is he lived the type of life where if his indiscretions were publicly exposed, he he is not the type of person that would be elected a second term or maybe a first term as as president here in the present day. Um, so let's talk about that. Here, here's the story. Uh, David, who is the youngest son of a man named Jesse, and like a lot of important people in the Bible, he starts off as a shepherd. And then one day, this man named Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, and Samuel is a prophet, and, and he's also in charge of carrying out the Hebrew law as their judge, which is it's how it used to be before the kings, and, and it was God's original plan for his people, and let's spend just a second on that. Is that God doesn't want a king for Israel. He wants to be their king. And he, wants, and he wants them to listen to the prophets and follow the laws he establishes through Moses, okay? But they can't handle that, the 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 Hebrew people. They can't handle that. They see all the great nations around them, and they all have kings. Uh, or powerful leaders, and since these nations keep invading their promised land and they keep stealing their stuff, naturally, they think that the solution to this problem is to have a king, so God gives them a king, and that first king is Saul, right? Um, He starts off pretty good, but then he screws things up pretty badly, and that's going to be a theme, by the way, but the Hebrews feel empowered because God has given them a king, and that's what they want. So Samuel is the guy through uh, whom God makes this stuff happen. Uh, God anoints Saul as king through Samuel, and he's about to do the same thing through uh, with David. So Samuel shows up to anoint king or David king uh, after Saul, and and David is pretty young at this time, and, and this causes Saul uh, to become fearful and depressed. He's not doing very well. He's doing so poorly, in fact, that the text says the Lord was sorry he ever made Saul king of Israel. So, pretty bad. Um, Through this, Jesse, David's dad again, figures out a way for David to keep tending sheep and serving Saul. And initially, things are going pretty well between these two. And David becomes Saul's bearer of armor, which means he carries around Saul's battle equipment. And the text says that Saul loves David very much. And David is so awesome to add to that because when Saul gets upset, David has the ability to play the harp really nice and it calms Saul down. So it's very sweet. But then David shows up to the battlefield one day. And the Hebrews are locked into what amounts to a staring contest with this group of people called the Philistines. And they have this scary giant named Goliath. And David may be a bit full of himself because he's the next anointed king who bears the king's armor and, again, has the ability to play the harp uh, real nice. And he decides that he wants to challenge the giant. And everybody thinks this is hilarious. And at the very least, they think it's a terrible idea. Um, but Saul decides that it's okay and he sends him out. And, matter of fact, he gives David his own armor. He's still a child, but he, but he gives him this armor. And, and so he goes up and, and he does this. And the rest of this story is pretty well known. Uh, but David goes out into the battlefield. He's ridiculed by Goliath uh, because he shows up and he's tiny. and He's got a sling and he's got these five stones that he picks up, right? He fires one at Goliath's head. It hits him in the forehead. Goliath goes down. David then runs up to him, grabs Goliath's sword. He kills him with it. And then he chops his head off. And that's the end of Goliath. So David, in addition to being anointed as the next king, is now a war hero. And he takes Goliath's head and he shows it off to Saul. And Saul's pretty impressed and some stuff happens here. And David is basically made an army commander. Um, And he has more military victories and and resentment starts to grow in Saul. And we're we're skipping over some things. Just know that... um, There's more stuff that happens here that we don't have time for. Saul develops this jealousy, and he becomes fearful of David. And I've got to imagine that David, who started in this story as a nobody, as the youngest son of a a guy who tends sheep, he's starting to feel pretty good about himself. From shepherd to war hero to feared commander of armies is a pretty big big leap add to that, David knows that he's going to be the king someday. And you can only imagine that maybe his head starts to grow a little bit bigger than one set of shoulders can support. A lot of other stuff happens, um, but now we're going to fast forward to the part where David becomes the king, and people love him because he takes Jerusalem, the promised land, and the text says that God is with him through all of this, and it's, and it's good. But then the power starts to go to his head. And that's the point of this story, is that he has humble beginnings, and then everything is going his way. Literally everything is going his way. And he's built up to be bigger and bigger and this powerful and all of these things. And he gets lazy. So he's lounging around after his midday nap while his men are out fighting this group of people called the Ammonites, King Life. Am I right? Like, come on. And in his gaze, while he's wandering around on the top of his palace, his eye catches a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba. And he sins for her. That's important. And she comes to the palace and they sleep together. And after a little while, she becomes pregnant. And then she goes and she tells David about it. Now Bathsheba is not an available woman. She's married. But David uses his king powers to get what he wants. And that's something that needs to be said. I I imagine that Bathsheba felt quite a bit of pressure when people came to get her, to take her to the palace where the king lived. She didn't go on her own accord. We, We need to point that out. I think... Sometimes when we've read this story in the past, or we've been taught this story in the past, it's it's like David gave in to temptation, as if Bathsheba was trying to lure him. That's not what the text says. She went because he sent for her to come to the palace. And that's important, because what David is doing now is that breakdown, is that the He's using his power to get what he wants, and I think that's important to say, and that's what David did here. Anyway, David hears that Bathsheba is pregnant, and David sends for Uriah, which is Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's husband. And he's in the army, and he's fighting for the kingdom, and when he shows up, David admonishes him with praise, and he's like, hey man, you should, you should spend a night at home uh, where your wife is. And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to get Uriah to sleep with his own wife so that he thinks he gets her pregnant instead of David doing it. And the next day, David talks to Uriah again, and he's like, hey, how'd that go last night? And Uriah's like, you know, man, I have too much respect for my men uh, on the battlefield to come home and sleep with my wife. And David's like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, I can respect that. You know, why don't you go back to your men then, you know, if that's where you want to be? And so Uriah is sent back to the battle with his men. And David arranges for him to be killed. And you might know some of this story, but I assure you that it's, it's, it's far worse than than even, it's far worse than even I thought it was after I reread this. And, and so here's how bad it gets. This is uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses 14 through 25. It's page 222, if uh, you want to follow along with me. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Did you hear what I said? David wrote a letter, a death decree, gave it to the man who was to be killed so that he could take it to his commander to carry this plan out. I hadn't picked up on that before, but it's it's pretty bad. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger. When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall, and he died in Thebez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, What's really important is that your servant, uh, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. (laughs) The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he, he told David everything Joab had said to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. Archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as other. another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. I think the level of plotting here is really sinister. And what David orchestrates here is, I can't categorize it as anything short of pure evil. And, and, and I want to say that because, because it's the truth. And it begs the question, how does David go from unheard of shepherd boy to war hero to murderous monster? By obtaining power and then abusing it. And that's the problem with having a king. He becomes the hero, both in his mind and in the mind of people he's leading. And when an earthly king replaces a heavenly king, we're always going to find disappointment no matter who it is. And that goes for heroes too. We're always let down by people. There's simply no way out of it. And what I want to suggest to you today is that that's where grace fills in the gap. So here's the deal. Grace doesn't mean we aren't held accountable for our actions. Because believe it or not, David receives the grace of God through his repentance, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, if you want to read those. But he receives this grace in an alternative way, and not not really the way we commonly think of receiving grace when it happens. After this betrayal of his position as king and uh, the leader of the Hebrew people, David's family falls into chaos. Bathsheba gives birth to a son and the baby doesn't survive. David has another son named Amnon who rapes his half-sister named Tamar. Tamar's half-brother Absalom murders Amnon for this. And then he starts a civil war to try and steal the throne from David, his own father. Another one of David's sons named Adonijah proclaims himself to be the king while David is still in his reign. And David somehow is able to live through all this strife to ensure that Solomon eventually becomes the king after he dies. So David suffers through this, and he gets grace, but he doesn't get a ton of mercy for doing uh, what he did by God. And the grace is in the details, though, as David's line of descendants eventually produces Jesus And grace is is receiving blessings of God even though we don't deserve it. And what happens through David's life is that God keeps his promise and delivers this Messiah who shows us mercy by taking the sting out of death and creating this pathway back to the Father. It's hard to get there sometimes, man. And I, I, I like to think of David as like this guy who defends or, you know, his people, and, and he defeats Goliath. His life is just much more complicated than that. And, um, and it... I, I, I want to say that that's comforting, but it's not, because we're, we all have that thing. I don't, maybe none of us in here have killed anybody, or, you know, we've, we've done anything like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know everybody. But I, I, I'm guessing that there's something there. Um... And this, this is just, this is how I feel about it. There have been times in my life when, when something good happens, you know. And maybe even it's a direct result of something good I did. And, and I, can't, I can't allow myself to fully comprehend why God would even allow something like that to happen. Because there are many times I don't feel worthy. And now, I've dealt with a lot of that stuff. I mean, professional counseling is a godsend for those of us who have, who have used it. But even then, I think this is something that I'm always going to struggle with. And it's not shame anymore. Sometimes, I guess it is. But it's just a baffling concept to me that, that God continues to use me even when I can't fully understand it. And that's grace. And again, you know, I said this a couple weeks ago, but God doesn't have any choice but to use people who constantly screw things up. That's all of us. And, and that's Grace. And, it, and as I process this, I, I don't know why, but it makes me think of these two things. The first thing it makes me think of is uh, the parable of the mustard seed. And that's on page 691. And here it is from Matthew 13. He told them another parable. This is uh, Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour and worked it all through the dough. So I used to, I used to read this passage, and I think I was taught this passage as sort of like a comparison thing. Um... The connotation being like, man, if you have just a little bit of faith, like, look what God can do. Just imagine if you had a lot of faith. And I don't, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I, I think it's saying a little bit of faith is, is a lot, actually. And the kingdom will grow uh, because God wants it to, even when we only have the faith of the mustard seed. And I think that's grace. Grace. And the other thing it makes me think about is the Apostle Paul and his affliction or this this thorn in his side that he talks about. Paul, of course, has received special revelation from God during his ministry, but he's also been given this thing, whatever it is, uh, that keeps him humble about his special revelation. And within within this passage, uh, he he talks about grace. And this is 2 Corinthians 12, and that's page 822. It says this, I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power Is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. David is a conflicted man. And if you read any bit of the Psalms that he, they wrote, you find that within that text. Especially 32 and 51 when he's repenting for some of this stuff that he did. He, he understands his brokenness. And even though like what he did is pretty terrible, he he believes in a God that's bigger than anything that he did. And, 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 and it's bad, right? <laughs> like, it's bad. Um, but he believes in a God that's bigger than those things, and he, and he writes extensively about it. And and then, and then here's, here's my final point on that. We receive grace because God wants us to follow him. Broken people, as we are, who, who can't get out of our own way, and we're finite beings, and we mess things up, and and we need to ask for forgiveness. We we receive grace from our creator because it's the only way to ensure a connection between the two. It's the perfect play. Erase the shame and guilt that we feel from messing things up, and then then invite us uh, to help him build a heavenly kingdom here on earth. Yeah, man. Like, that's what I'm looking for in life. And I'm in and that's it. The band's going to come up lead us in a song, and um, we'll have a few announcements, and then we'll be on our way.